Hey, it's that time of the week again. It's mentally chill time. I'm your host, Kristen Carney, and if you know me, you know that the word excite or excited is something I don't use often and definitely don't use lightly, but I will say in all honesty, I am very excited for this week's show. I did something a little differently than I normally do. I normally have people on that I'm familiar with or know And the reason I do that is because I can kind of guarantee some sort of banter or conversation um, flow. And so normally I don't like to have people on that I don't really know because I don't want to risk that. But this was totally worth the risk because I have Josh Goldberg on, who is the executive director of this place called Boulder Crest. And Boulder Crest is essentially a rehabilitation center for veterans and military, military family, all sorts of things that I would never, ever get involved in because I am a coward. Just kidding. I'm very brave. Um, No, I'm not. Anyway, it's a really interesting show. Josh has a lot of great insight beyond PTSD. And uh, he has a book coming out called Struggle Well because he advocates for not trying to fight struggling but accepting that you're going to struggle and doing it well. So that's coming out in May. So it's a really good show. Stick around for it before I allow you to the other side of the wall, which is the show. I, of course, have to say thank you to everyone on Patreon. Thank you for being amazing. Thank you for supporting the show. Just had um, a really good Skype session with someone from Patreon. And that's something that uh, I do for a certain level of donation, We Skype for about 45 minutes or an hour and uh, you can ask me anything and all that kind of stuff. It's fun. It's a really, it's, it's not as I, I, at first when I started doing it, I was really afraid of it. And then um, I've learned that it's actually a very enjoyable thing. So you can do that with me if you go to patreon.com slash mentally chill. And this week, shout outs and thank yous go to Mike, Martin, and Chris bunch of dudes and popular with the ladies i mean the men you guys are men i swear um so yeah patreon.com slash mentally chill but until then please enjoy the show you've done podcasts before i have done podcasts before and they were what Uh, uh, and they were aggressive well i combine aggression and comedy so we're good this is good i like the comedy (laughs) because i was on with a marine who was calling me names uh, that I don't even repeat most of the time. And so it's nice. It's nice to have the levity. Like the, pussy. Yeah, that's exactly what he said. Like, you sound like a pussy. And I'm like. Really? And I, for a second, I just stopped. And I was, I, was, I wasn't with him. I was on the phone. And I'm like, got it. What well, a to, cliche Marine. Yeah, but like, you know, 32 years in the Marine Corps, lots of deployments. You like, know, was like, he like, like, what are you, a pussy? Like, can't it, you not do? It, it was compassionate, if that's possible. A compassionate. He was compassionate, he was compassionate about compassionate calling you a pussy. He was compassionate about calling me out. Well, and I spent a lot of time with him. I'm. I'm I tell people I grew up as an indoor Jew, so to be oh, with totes, these dudes, yeah. like I'm, 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 I'm not gonna sit and argue. What's the value in arguing? It's yeah. all relative. So. Yeah. What's your take on the outdoors? Because I'm not a fan of the outdoors. It's not like I dislike the outdoors, but it doesn't do much for me. And there's a comedian Neil Brennan who was on an episode before, but he had just posted something on his Instagram, like up all about how, like, no, he doesn't want to go see the sunset. He doesn't. The outdoors does nothing for him. Are you like that, or are you just you were just an indoor Jew, but you do now do outdoors things yeah so i have a very interesting journey into the world of outdoors so i think i have a lot better appreciation than <laughs> you I used open to. the door i open the door and 
uh, I don't want to get sidetracked by a long story, but I did get a knock on my door with a guy I work with who I live next door to. And he was like, I need your help to drag a deer out of the woods. And he's been teaching me how to hunt. You're like, Jews don't so, do that. Well, right. So, but I'm like, this is the greatest thing ever. So yeah. I'm sitting there, we're dragging this deer out of the woods. And I'm like, and then by the way, we took it to the butcher and then the butcher returned the meat. It was kind of interesting from a food cycle perspective, but I'm like, this oh, is wow. crazy. Like, yeah. like 10 years ago when I was like in my you know office or my house or like, but so now like I, I, I appreciate it a lot more. And I'm open to learning. That's one of the things I've learned about myself is I don't know what I'm going to like till I try it. Yeah. So I try stuff. I've tried hunting. I've seen one deer for two seconds. So he was like the racist dad you never had. Yeah, but he's like a super nice guy. But yeah, yeah. (laughs) of course. I'll I'll go with that. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we're joking, man, if you're listening to the show who took Josh hunting. Uh, So um, no, we're not. But uh, thanks for hanging out. And so I'm this is exciting for me to do this kind of show because normally I just talk to you. Uh, like comics and like people who aren't really in this industry of mental health so much. And so for people, I'm going to do an intro at the top of the show. So I've already kind of introduced you, but um, you are the, you're the executive director of Boulder Crest, which is a recovery center for most from like war veterans that have PTSD and and shit like that. Right. So basically, so we have a a retreat center in Arizona. We have one in Virginia. And those are places for combat veterans and first responders and their families and folks who are struggling. PTSD, anxiety, depression, suicidality. And then I think in large part because of of how much need we see in the world, far beyond just veterans of war, we created created Boulder Crest Institute in January, which I'm going to run, which is really dedicated to bringing what we're learning on the ground into the world. And oh. um, so that's the whole principle and the whole idea. Okay. Um, so how do you guys bring that into the world outside of a cent- treatment center facility? Well, and we're, and part of it is we're still working on figuring it out. But I think you, Ken and I, who's the, co- the founder of Boulder Crest, uh, we decided to write a book because we're like, every time we meet with donors, uh, civilians, if you will, people who aren't involved, they say, can we come through the program? And we're like, no, we don't have scope for that. But what we can do is at least dedicate a year of our lives to figuring out how would you share what we've learned uh, with people in a way where they could integrate into their own lives. With the common folk? With the common folk. So will it be in like classes or? That too. I mean, we hope the book stands on its own two feet. And we also hope, you know, I mean, you never know where this goes. I mean, we we wrote it to be able to offer something to people when we can't be there. And I think, but, but in terms of trainings and things like that, that's the stuff we're looking towards is how is bringing it to the world. And and it's like naked pics for your boyfriend, except in a book form. Like here, go into the, you're, you're safe without exactly, me. Exactly. You can yes, manage you can for a little while. Self-reliant. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly. Yeah. Yes. Right. So, uh, it's for PTSD and I be, I've talked, I did like one episode, I think on trying to talk about PTSD and my PTSD is on like the super small scale of like, I'm, I'm a girl and oh my God. And I was bullied and nail polish but there's legit p and i think like to an extent some of my ptsd is legitimate like i have things that i cannot get through in my brain that i get like flashbacky on about like people hating me everywhere i go and yeah but uh, anyway so this is real deal shit though these people that you're working with have seen a lot or not because the way you're looking at me leads me to say maybe not well, and I and I'd say a couple of things because because for me, I mean, I the the reason so so veterans saved my life, right? Like I said, I grew up as an indoor Jew, and and I encountered them at a time when I just I was in in a fog so heavy that I just couldn't see straight, and I was ready to end it. I was like, well, I might as well start over because it's got to be a better than this. 
and and they were the ones randomly through a random set of circumstances I, I encountered them and I think I'd say a couple of things one is trauma is trauma right it's so it's relative to the person and and I don't know if you've ever read Victor Frankl's book Man's Search for Meaning I don't um, read and I brought you well you, I, you have to because I brought you a copy of it and your book is um, called Struggle Well our, book, our book's called Struggle Well it's out in May okay, um, cool. and in the meantime I brought uh, Victor Frankl's book and he talks about how trauma is like gas in a bulb it will fill the space no matter how much or little there is mm. and so mm-hmm. you know don't underestimate or undermine your own because when I was saying about this Marine who called me a pussy on the air, his point was, you know, he had been to war and seen all these things and had all these experiences. And it's like, for me, it was like a divorce, um, you know, leaving my job, trying to really start over. Yeah. And that was, that was enough, right? Cause I just didn't have the capabilities and the strength uh, to do that because no one, people train me to be smart, not strong. Right. You should have told him a pussy's a pussy. Yes. And he's also a pussy yeah. for not seeing your strength. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and, and the thing is, you can recognize it in retrospect. It's a lot easier to be compassionate and judgmental of yourself after the fact. Yeah. And I was talking to some friends about that very idea yesterday. It's like, you know, when you when you struggle, it's hard to see the subjective wins that you're achieving on your road to getting better and getting well. Um, and and I think that's one of the interesting parts. But to your question about, about war veterans, uh, one of the other driving forces behind the book was this idea that uh, what we consistently see is if you take two soldiers who had the exact same experience in war and one comes home and everything's fine and the other one comes home and really struggles, what it would more often do have to do is two things. One is what happened before they joined, um, which is the amount of, of ch- what they call adverse childhood experiences or childhood trauma uh, in the all-volunteer force is profound. It's three to five times greater than the civilian community, and it's, it's dramatic. And the second thing is what happens when they, when they come home to this world, this society, right. and and I've been binging on, on some of your podcasts oh lately, and you talk <laughs> about this idea of like, um, you know, struggle is when we're our most human. And yeah. so there's this question of like, is, are, are the crazy people the ones who aren't affected by the world we live in, or are, are, are we the sane ones right. who actually uh, see the world for what it is? And so there's something really interesting about that idea, and yeah. I, th- I tend to think like I'd rather be crazy if that's what crazy means. Absolutely, yeah. So these guys that you see and work with like say it is the one soldier that had what what basically what's what is the childhood what is the difference so when a guy comes home and is struggling what was in his childhood or past that made it harder for him to adjust back into the world well i'd say as a general severe abuse like verbal emotional physical sexual uh abuse in in uh amounts that would confound and and stagger people i mean i think the thought that a parent could do that to a child um, and terrorize their children, uh, it stuns me, right? And, I, and look, and I, I have parents who are, who are wonderful people, and they screwed me up, too. And I love them. Yeah, and, oh, know, my God. Right. The most wonderful, like, my mom is the best and the most amazing, but totally it made me a maniac. Yeah. So, yeah, it's like no matter what you do, you're darned. Yes, it's you know, the you're worst darned job if you do, You're darned if you don't. The, um, so, but it's possible, though, obviously, for a soldier to not have had abuse or a traumatic childhood and still come back from war and, and suffer PTSD or suffer as equally as someone else, or no? I mean, so I basically, when I, when I see a war veteran and he's on the street asking for money, can I assume he was abused as a child and it's not from war? I think you can, uh, what I take issue with, there's something called complex trauma and then there's simple trauma. And simple trauma is the idea that it's one thing. And complex trauma is the idea that it's additive, that it that accumulates. And I just struggle with the belief that like someone wouldn't have experienced some 
difficult circumstances beyond their capacity to deal with until they're 22, 25. Like it just, it's improbable. And so that's what I, when, when I think we all have our stories and if, and, and the thing is when we really struggle deeply is when we start to reflect on that story and the way it affects us. So if, if somebody grew up in a household where it was severe alcoholism, what it means is when they encounter struggle, when they're, we, we talk about rucksacks in the military. So let's say you go in the military and your rucksack's 75% full. You go in, you see a bunch of dead bodies, your buddy gets blown up. It's, it's the cumulative factor. It's possible that if they never went into the military that they would have been okay. And it's also true that the military uh, trains them and gives them a sense of purpose and connection and value that they never had before and probably couldn't find any other way. And that's one of the interesting uh, dynamics of this story is how wrong it is, uh, and I say that as a civilian observer, is uh, you talk to folks who go to war, and it's the most alive they've ever felt. Mm. And and I think that's when you get into that's like experience. For, for like me, it's like, that's gossip. Hmm. Like, I'll feel so alive, because it's terrible and bad, yep. but it makes you feel alive. That's like my equivalent of war. Yeah, and, and, it, but, and I think you know, Joseph Campbell says that we're not seeking the meaning of life, we're seeking the experience of being alive. We're mm. speaking, seeking joy. And, and, and part of that experience isn't just joy and bliss and being the Dalai Lama. It's also the struggle part of it, like to actually feel into life and, and experience it in a really profound way. Yeah. And I wish uh, I could remember that at like 9 a.m. when I'm trying to get, well, 9 a.m. so late for any other people, but when I'm trying to get out of bed, like if I could just remember, this is this, the experience of life I'm trying to have. Yeah. But we don't realize that in the moment. We get so caught up in the small things of like, oh, my socks are uncomfortable or I have to poop and I can't. N- not that I that's a thing for me. I mean, I'm clear as a whistle. No, just kidding. It's weird when I talk about poop to strangers. But um, sorry to cut you off there. You were I don't know. Not at all. And, and, you know, this morning I got coffee, put it in the cup holder. Cup thing falls over. It spills everywhere, right? And it's right. like uh, maybe five years ago, that ruins my day, right? And, right. and you can't, you have no concept. And today it's just like you laugh. You got a little bit of paper towel and try to make hay with right. it. Right. Well, and, you know. it's the, yeah, you're right. It's the experience of life. I was actually saying that last night. So I, my new episode um, came out technically today, which is Friday, which is supposed to be Thursday. But I was taping last night into the wee hours um, because I was doing it alone and I get very procrastinating and stuff. But I think I was saying on the episode, um, about yeah I was it's like keeping um uh or trying to make mental health more of a like digestible thing and I was saying that it's essentially if we talk about it in a way that's just normal it's the same thing as talking about sports because it's all just the experience of life like it doesn't if you just talk about it the way you would talk about your grocery list it's the you know it's just we're just all experiencing life at the same time whether it's depression or um or, you know, doing yoga. It's just yeah. and, it's and all we, the same thing. And we um, otherize people when they struggle. You know, it's just kind of similar to the way people talk about, you know, what we do with old people. We put them kind of, we don't want to see it. We don't want to see aging. Yeah, I and put bags over their heads. Yeah, I'm like, exactly. I can't look at that face. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, I love my, old people, by the way. Even my grandma, who died recently, was 102. And, Holy. And, and she died suddenly. I always tell people. But she was like, I don't, she, she moved into an assisted living. And indoor was, you? Um, yeah, very. Yeah. Indoor yeah. You. Um, and she... Uh, was upset because the nursing home is across the street. And she was like, I don't, and there's like three ambulances a day because people are dying. She's like, I don't need to be reminded that I'm going to die. And I'm like, you're 102. <laughs> like, you've got to face the fact right. that like. Like every, <laughs> your waking minute is, an, is a reminder. Right, it's a blessing. Yeah. Like yeah. You, you don't, you're literally guaranteed, not guaranteed the next second. And yeah. I think that one of the things that's really important uh, to me personally, and I'm happy to share my story and I talk to people and it's like, the fact that it's so stunning to people, I could stand in front of them and be like, you know, I was going to, I was as close as possible to ending my life. 
and people are staggered and like, you're so courageous and so and it's like but it shouldn't be that way because the truth is we all struggle and that's a universal element of being human and it's actually in some respects the point um you know when you look at buddhism and some of these other faces predicated on the idea of suffering and sorrow not that we live in that but that we acknowledge that it exists and it's a part of our experience and so uh, what you do in having these conversations is so powerful because it takes people, when you struggle, you think something's wrong with me, I'm not okay, and no one understands, right? And it's some way of feeling defective. And it's like if if people hear the stories over and over again, it's like, okay, no, 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 this is a normal part of the range of experiences. Exactly. Instead of just limiting it to like, oh, well, once you get to here, you know, once you get too low, you gotta, you have to go away somewhere and be medicated and institutionalized, whatever it may be. And I think that's uh, that's definitely the narrative of our society is that, you know, struggles to be feared, not not really embraced. And right, right. Is it embraced in other cultures still in 2018, do you think? It's embraced in the military. Yeah. That, that's what I find. Like, you know, we look at these experiences, and the standard story is dude's fine, goes to war, sees a bunch of bad stuff, comes home, and, 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 and it hits him, and he can't deal. And it's like, but what I found in that culture, and, and look, there's positive negatives in every culture, is that there's so much right about it. And, and it's a community-based culture, and people have jobs, and they have value, and they work together, and they're principles, and they have purpose. And it's, it's this beautiful world. And then these guys come home to this world, and they're like, uh-uh, yeah. what the hell is this? Yeah. And that's what you do here, which the ability to have the insight while you're in the experience, like you talk about like waking up, is the profound thing, which is you didn't have to leave to have the perspective needed to be able to comment on it. And I think that's what they teach me. Yeah. Does the military do any teaching or any training to soldiers of how to deal with what they're going to be seeing? Is there any preparation that they do psychologically? They do. Uh, and, and it depends on different levels. Like if you're talking about like SEAL Team 6 at the highest echelons of like America's national security apparatus, those guys have the same quality of sports psychologists that the, you know, psychologists yeah. the Yankees would have, you know, like high end. On the lower levels, it's it's mixed. They have a different program. Some are effective, some aren't. Um, but what I would say is I, I do believe fundamentally the military is, a, is the finest training institution in the history of the world, and their capacity to prepare people for whatever they're going to encounter. It's the word pussy. Right, but, the, the, but they, 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 can, they, they can deal with it. And, and I think that's one of the interesting parts. Is, and that's what they've trained me, and that's so when this Marine calls me a pussy, and it's like, and I've spent six years in training with these dudes about what strength looks like. And strength isn't, by the way, like brawn. It's not physical strength. It's, it's the intestinal fortitude. It's the perseverance. It's the, the discipline to, to struggle and wake up and not want to do anything and do it anyway. And that's, I think, what they teach me is what real strength looks like, not kind of, um, you know, all hat, no cattle kind of thing. Right. Wait, wait. So why are they teaching you things? Is it because you're wanting to learn more for the business that you're in? It's, it's sort of the osmosis experience of just being okay. around these. Yeah. And, and, and most of our staff are veterans. And so and okay. kind of like the qualifying criteria to work at our places, you've had to struggle really deeply because we believe in the power of human experience. We believe in the power of uh, being able to support each other. But it's just by being around them that they hold me accountable. They, and, and, and just their stories, their experiences, it's a really, you know, I, I, I learn from them, but I learn from everybody. My view in life is that I'm a student. And so everybody has something they can teach me, and it's my job to figure out what am I supposed to learn from whoever it is. And so I'm not in formal training with them. It's just the day-to-day -day in encounters and engagement yeah. uh, and the experiences they've had are really, really profound to yeah. me. It'd be great to have uh, like a degree that you get from just being a student of life. Like you, you put it up like a doctor would in your office and you're like, see, look, I graduated from life. Look at this. One the most yeah. prestigious. I was kuma su, su, wait. Summa, cum laude. summa cum laude. Why? I'm not. 
I'm not why I'm not dyslexic. Why did I just say that? Um, anyway, uh, yeah, being a student life is like the hardest, but, but it, yeah, it's the truest. Yeah. And then we say life is life's best teacher. And you know, I'm well educated. I went to good schools. My parents valued education, and I'm like, and I learned uh, the hardest lessons and the best lessons. The the only way I think you really learn it is by experiencing it. And someone could tell you something, but it doesn't mean that much. And right. I don't know what's true for you, but I just you know, I don't learn anything. You know, <laughs> like it's like I have no pores to soak in information. I just it's just that that no. I learn things, but I don't I don't actively seek to learn things, which is a weird thing. I think because when I was a kid, I didn't learn easily, so I have like an adverse reaction to any type of active learning on my part. Like just going online to research things, I get anxiety mm. because I don't trust that I'm going to understand them or or be able to digest it all and then regurgitate it wrong you know so I have like a guard up about that stuff but um with PTSD specifically what are some of the things that people really experience and go through like the like the worst most difficult terrible PTSD I kind of want to know the details of so the way I think about PTSD because it it feels and I had a really interesting uh, conversation so so we're clear I'm not a mental health professional I don't have any background in this I study international relations you know so I'm a layman's layman. And we went up to Harvard and we met with all the psychologists and psychiatrists and this lady was talking about, we talked about what we did and she was like, but what about the PTSD? What about the PTSD? <laughs> and I'm like, what is that? Like, is that a, a, a being, a boogeyman? Like, what is it? And, and so the answer for me is what it really is, is it's a combination of anxiety, depression, uh, insomnia or sleepless sleep issues. And then this sense of spiritual meaninglessness. It's this kind of like void, this hole of, of, uh, I don't know why I'm here. I don't fit. I don't belong anywhere. And the sense of just disconnection with yourself and with the world. And so, so does it not have as much to do with adverse reactions to stimuli that were bad at one point? Because that's kind of how I look at it. Like, you know, I am fra- afraid people hate me all the time. So now, you know, when I go somewhere new, I get sweaty because I'm reacting to those feelings that I had before. Is that not PTSD? Well, and it's interesting because like in the traditional side, I just saw Jennifer Lawrence was talking about it because she, uh, she was in a near plane crash and uh, this plane like dropped out what, of the Recently? Air. Yeah, recently. Was and that she, when she gave the, the announcement over the thing? I saw a headline that she gave an announcement over the loudspeaker. I don't know. I just saw like this quick thing about her talking about oh, I didn't know uh, that. PTSD. And, and so in that experience, like it, it's totally rational obviously that that you would end up then every time you're on a plane and she talked about watching beauty and the beast and like having coping mechanisms and and i think with uh the military folks that they have wait i'm sorry watching it's well i have to cut you off there because the the episode that just came out today i talked about beauty and the beast so that's totally random unless you listen to the episode i didn't and i've never seen beauty and the the new random so why did she reference beauty and the beast apparently that's what that's her go-to to 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 make her feel safe to be okay on the plane yeah oh okay interesting yeah Yeah. that's all i know that's the limit of my knowledge yeah like i had a i if i said this on a podcast a long time ago but i had a um like a nightmare about september 11th about two weeks before it happened and then it happened so basically um not to retell the story for people who have already heard it but uh i had a dream that Planes were flying into buildings and buildings were falling in a city. And I was there in my in the dream. I was there in real life. I wasn't. But I my I was with my mom and we hid under an awning of a building to try to protect ourselves from the falling debris of the buildings. And then about two weeks later, all of a sudden that happened and it was like, oh, my God. And so after that, I had um I, I wasn't sure 
I didn't know how to def- differentiate between dreams that were like premonition dreams and that weren't. And so I started having um, like weekly plane crash dreams. And so I never knew if I was dreaming of my own plane crash because I had had that experience. So flying for about 10 years became incredibly difficult. And now it now I'm much better, but I had such severe fear of flying that I almost would run off the airplanes before they before they close the door or, you know, d- during the seatbelt stuff, you know. Um, so I, is that PTSD? Yeah, I mean, and that's that's a you know obviously an intense experience, and I think that it's um, it is. I think in some ways it's like your nervous system like is paralyzed, right? right. Like you know, and, and they have the stories of you know veterans go in and they go to the grocery store and they're overwhelmed and they throw their shit down and like leave. This banana and, looks like know, that gun. Yeah, or you know can't can't drive on the you know and 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 it makes sense. It's like you know if you're hyper vigilant that you're driving in Iraq and everything that's out of place could be a possible roadside bomb. Yeah. Then it makes sense that you come home. You get jumpy and, and you have that same experience. Right. The the question is, what do you do? Yeah. And and how do you you talk about like regulation. How do you get back to a place where your system's not on hyper alert all the time? And the the damning thing with uh, with military folk and PTSD is that they're actually trained to have that heightened sense and that heightened state. And then they come home and they still have it. And we're like, oh, you have a disorder. Right. We're going to give you med- It's like, right. no, no, no. That's like but literally that's what I, was supposed to I was trained to do yeah, that. Yeah. And that worked really well. Now train me more so I don't have to live this way. But instead of training them more, we just say, here's your diagnosis and here's your, you know, your medication. And that's the part that's sort of patently unfair about it is I do, I do think, and, and part of this idea is that we can all be trained to, to figure out what to do with it. But because, you know, we're not really able to talk about our fears and our concerns and things like that, I think that uh, uh, we, we end up getting stuck there. You know, yeah. we get stuck and, and I think, you know, and I was paralyzed. I was afraid I, when I was a little kid, I used to constantly be afraid of being kidnapped. Now, I don't know why I grew up in North Dallas. It was a safe place, but I would like play wiffle ball with my friends. And every time a car drove by, I would like look to see if they were coming. And I'm yeah. like, I don't know where that came well, from. I mean, I mean, I don't know how your parents were, but kids are pretty instilled with the fear of like, don't talk to strangers. They could take you. Right. And I, and I don't remember the stranger danger conversation. I don't oh, you don't? Okay. I just, but like that fear in adulthood becomes literally just anxiety, right? It's just this like yeah. this this horrible feeling about everything, and and it, it's paralyzing. Yeah. And so like that was part of my journey is figuring out how to how to understand where it started and what it's about, and so I could let go of it and be like, that's not even mine. I yeah. don't know where that came from, but it's certainly it's not ingrained in me. It's just this 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 thing I have that I and then it perpetuates itself, and so it's uh it's an interesting experience. But yeah, what's the success t- story or? not story but like what's the success rate with the people that you guys work with do you see a lot of progress i mean you'd have to say yes because it's your business but also i'm sure it's true yes well yes and yes and and the all of the work we do is based on something called post-traumatic growth right i read that yeah it's the other side it's it's the side that says that suffering is a part of life and in fact it's a useful part of life and it can uh, and what it really, the reason why is that it, it takes you to life at a much deeper level and you start to focus on the things that matter. So not desperate housewives or the housewives or whatever. No, they're know. my favorite. No, just kidding. <laughs> and, and, but instead of that, you're focused on like meaningful and deep relationships. Yeah. You're focused on a sense of purpose and the things like, and moving in. real and, human beings. You know, yeah. And, and let's like, you know, in a, in a simple way like you know eulogy versus resume stuff you're focused on really deep and meaningful things and so what oh we my god i would love if they changed i would get so many jobs if it was a eulogy that they hired you off of and not your resume it's my resume shit 
Yeah, but that's what they like. You know, they, there's this idea of like you know hire for uh, attitude, train for skills, and and that's one of the reasons why the, you know 33 percent of people in this country like what they do for a living. 70 percent of people almost are completely disengaged. I'm actually surprised do. it's that high. 33 yeah. percent. <laughs> I've worked in big companies, and I would uh, wholeheartedly agree. Uh, with some amazing stories of what people would do in their work time to try to find fulfillment. And yeah, I think, yeah. I think that that, um, yeah, it's just really, really interesting. Yes. Now you can find fulfillment with podcasts at work. Well, there was Put one those lady who was in and classes at Nuvo Riche University, which I, you know, that's an interesting university. I've heard of that. Yeah. What is that? It's Nuvo Riche. I don't know. But, you know, Nuvo Riche is like new rich. And oh, is that what that means? Real estate classes. Oh, yeah. oh, okay. That I just have heard the term. Yeah, not I found the, that on the printer. The, I was like, what is, what is this? What the <laughs> hell is this? <laughs> right. Uh, and so I think that, that that's the idea. So what we look at uh, programmatically is, is we t- I have a real issue with a world where we tell people that when they struggle, that the rest of their life is going to be some fraction of what it used to be. And what I call this like the diminished version of yourself kind of theory of life, which is as you go through life, stuff happens. If bad enough stuff happens, then your life is permanently diminished. And you know, we wonder about hopelessness and, and suicide and these things. It's like when you tell somebody that their life's never going to be what it was, watch what happens. It's not going to be good. Yeah. Well, I remember the first, my first day ever in a therapy as an adult, because I did therapy for a little bit in college. But um, when I started it living here, the first thing that I said to the therapist, and I was crying, but I just said, I am not, I, I'm not who I used to be. I don't have the, like, I don't have the sparkle in me anymore. And I don't have like, the essence that I used to have. I felt like I used to have like a, like a, like a lovely essence, even though I like hated myself, I felt like I still had like this, like this thing. And then I, and I remember feeling like it was gone and I would never ever return to that person. And it was the worst feeling ever. And, yeah. and I remember her saying, I'm surprised that you're telling me that. Cause you don't give that off to me. But I was like, Oh, I give it off. Well, <laughs> and the, my, my ex-wife used to say that she peaked in high school. And I was like, that's not, you know, it reminded me of married with children when like he always talked about playing football and, I'm like, that's not, that's not the way life goes. I mean, it's kind of this idea of, of not to get too philosophical, but of like, you know, we yeah, die we like a thousand, to keep it here. Yeah, we, but you die a thousand deaths. It's like this idea of a, yeah. a snake shedding its skin and, and, and having to that's refine. That's such a good perspective. Know, and, and these life transitions and these, these phases we go through where different things captivate us and inspire us. And I, I, I think that's like the idea behind life. It's that we, we don't want to, you know, uh, Campbell also says hell is life, uh, freeze drying, uh, drying up, right? It's this idea that we get stagnant and when we stop growing, stop evolving, stop pursuing, we, we, we start to struggle and that's not yeah. a good thing. And so, uh, for us with our program, what we look at isn't just symptom reduction. So the traditional system would look at, you know, okay, so you're struggling with anxiety or depression or insomnia. Our goal is to reduce that. And what we see is about 30% reductions in traditional treatments. And then, but not below what would be the threshold for that diagnosis, which means, you know, you go in for some intensive treatment, spend 12 to 18 weeks in it. And, and although you feel a little better, the truth is you're still symptomatic and, 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 and diagnosable. And that's a problem because it's this albatross, right? It starts to make you think, well, hey, maybe nothing will work. And, and that, again, right, leads to really bad outcomes. And so for us, what we measure is symptom reduction, quality of life improvement, and post-traumatic growth. And the, and the, Say that one more time. Sorry, so symptom reduction. So what uh-huh. is the extent? And, and, you know, symptoms have some value because symptoms are catalysts. They, they tell you that how life is isn't how it needs to stay because you, you kind of have to do something. Anxiety is better than depression because anxiety at least is a motivator. Yeah. Depression obviously is deflating. And, yeah. and so at a debilitating level, symptoms obviously are unhelpful. 
Right. And because they prevent you from leaving your house or driving your car or getting out of bed. Well, I had a, a an ulcer on my eyeball last year, and uh, they it hurt so bad. Get an ulcer on my That's, eye. I know, isn't that crazy? I, I wear contacts, and I probably was overwearing them, and it I got a cut or something on my eye, and then it turned into an ulcer. But the reason I'm saying this is because it hurt so bad. It was one of the worst feelings I've ever had in my life. And uh, they would not give me a numbing pain, a numbing thing because they needed to know I needed to know, to know if the symptoms were getting worse, because if they kept it numb, I would never know if it was getting worse. And then it could get to a point where it was untreatable or really damaging. So you had to like suffer through the pain so that you could feel it getting better and know that it was going away. And, yeah. and I was like, no, please just give me the good stuff. Um, but anyway, so it's like very similar idea. And it's like a metaphor for life, right? It's kind of yeah. like, like, and 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 look, some for some people, medication works. I, I heard that you know you recently came off antidepressants. I got I got medicated when I was struggling, and and I found I traded one form of alienation and disconnection for another, and yeah. I did not feel. I, I mean, I took anti-anxiety medicine. I felt less anxious. I also felt like a really weird human being, like with abnormal reactions. So then you have a different level of anxiety. Right, like, right. am I reacting normally to this situation, right. or am I just like? It'll like, come back in a different form. Yeah, and so. I think that uh, that the the metaphor for life is actually the suffering and the struggle is is it's a signal. It's a signal for something, right. and hopefully it's a signal for growth. And and again, what we don't ever talk about is the other side of like trauma or PTSD or depression. That, that there's some value in it. And the question is, how do you mine it for the value? And so that's the first part. And and so on that, you know, our, our reduction numbers are profound. They're fifty five percent and extended. You know, at twelve months. So what? And you're doing measuring things with conversation, like talk things. Like how do you how do you oh, actually measure it? So what we do is we have this eighteen month study we're doing on the, our program evaluation. So it's it's uh, so some before someone gets to so our program is eighteen months in duration, but seven days on the ground, and then there's lots of video conferences and individual coaching things like that. So before they come, they set foot on one of our places they will do a survey and that it's 250 questions. It's quite painful and go through lots of different things, but go through, you know, stress, anxiety, depression, insomnia, alcohol use, suicidality, on and on. So that's the yeah. symptom part. Yeah. And then we track them for 18 months. So we measure them after the week, then at 30 days, at 90 days, at six months. With the same questions? Months, same questions. And then at 18 okay. months. And so what you're looking for is because what's easy and our places are beautiful. What's easy is if you gave me anybody and they came away for a week, and they were in a place where people really cared about them. That was beautiful, and that had good food. And 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 I know I want to come. Yeah, so you should. Come. Yeah, you're welcome <laughs> to come. That's my invitation. Okay, cool. Is, extended, <laughs> is you're going to feel better. Yeah. The question is, what happens when you leave? Right. And if your life is a, uh, you know, clusterfuck, then that's what you're going home to. And the odds yeah. are you're going to feel better temporarily, and then go back to that. And that's also dangerous because it tells someone once again, well, maybe. Maybe I'm beyond fixing. Yeah. And so. Yeah. If your homeostasis level is like there, it starts to feel very nerve wracking. Yeah. That's yeah. where your normal is. Exactly. And, yeah. and, and, and the hopelessness thing is, is so profound. And that's what I think, you know, I'd like to think that the work we do in post-traumatic growth and these ideas are all about injecting hope into a conversation that usually doesn't have any. And so that's one. But how do you give someone hope? Because I feel like hope is something that you have or you don't. It's kind of like, it's a kind of like the light, the switch will go off when it's going to go off for you in terms of getting hope back, you know, or is it really them feeling like people caring about them does give them hope? Like, do they get a sense of hope from that? Yeah, well, and, and so yes. And 
I think there, there's a saying and it may be like a 12 step thing. And it's like, um, I don't need you to believe. I just need you to believe that I believe. And I think that sounds very 12 step. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. It? And so, uh, the, the hope part I think comes from people's stories. Yeah. And so for us, like there's some unbelievable stories when you talk about post-traumatic growth. So Victor Frankl, a uh, psychiatrist is in the concentration camps for three years. And, and that's why I brought that book. And I, I recommend anybody, I mean, man search for me. So he's old school. He's old school. Okay. And he's not the modern day concentration camps. No. Okay. Which ones are the modern? <laughs> I don't know. I'm oh. kidding. There, there's none. <laughs> none. Hopefully. <laughs> it always reminds me of that South Park episode where, um, I don't know if you ever watched South Park. I used to, but yeah. not in years. This is a long time ago, but um, my grandmother's in town and she's like hardcore Jew. And, uh, one time in her life, she sat down to watch South Park and it was an episode where the Jewish kid Kyle wasn't concentrating. And Carmen oh. goes to the teacher, well, maybe we should send him to a concentration camp. And I swagger about lost it. And I was like. Like uh, lost it in a good way or a bad no, way? No, bad way. Okay. We were dying laughing. Yeah, and she was yeah. like accusing us of being self-hating Jews yeah, and yeah, all these yeah, things. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, so yeah. now I'm not a practicing Jew. I guess I got booted. Um, <laughs> well, I feel like everyone should just be self-hating in general. Yeah. So it's good. Jewish, Catholic, not atheist. Well, you either Buddhist. get self-hating or just guilt-ridden. And I, or both, which is an interesting Which is comedy. a great combo. Yeah, it's wonderful. It yeah. really does wonders for your wellness. Totally. Um, so the second part we measure is quality of life. So this gets into relationships, physical wellness, financial wellness, employment, satisfaction, like real world measurements of someone's well-being because someone could feel better, but if they're not doing better, then it's, it's, it's irrelevant. It's, yeah, it just it's going to undo itself. Yeah, and it's, just, it's, and it's not meaningful. We talk about kind of, you know, your feelings aren't facts and these ideas that, that's, that how you feel shouldn't be the determinant of what you do. And so if you know you have a podcast you got to do and you wake up and you don't want to do it, you should do it anyway. And eventually if you do that, then the sort of feelings lose and, and you start to have a different response. Yeah. So. No. Okay. Well, that's true because normally, cause I'm actually taping um, my other podcast after this with my, this is my other co-host's house. And so we're going to do another podcast, which I actually want to ask if you want to stay and do, okay. but you don't have to, no pressure. It's a dating podcast. Um, but there's she, my roommate or my, my, my co-host was just saying, well, you know, post-traumatic stress in rejection and breakups is like a real thing. So anyway, if you want to stay for that, no pressure. But um, usually when I come come over to do this, like set up for a podcast, I get in a really bad mood. And it's it's for my other podcast and I like my other podcast, but like I, I don't know why, but I get very just like, I don't want to do it. Um, and again, it's for my other podcast called Ask Women, which I do like still anyway. I feel like I'm admitting that I don't like I like it. It's just um, I've been doing it for almost five years. So basically now it's just kind of like getting old. And uh, this morning, so I didn't fall asleep until 4 o'clock in the morning. And then I knew I had to come here around like 9.30. And normally I would be like, oh, and like my butt would be clenched really tight. And I'd be in a super bad mood. But I think I've hit the point where I kind of broke through that threshold of like misery to just like, no, this is fun and this is cool and I get to do this. It doesn't matter. It's so it's early for me. Like I I felt today, honestly, like a big step forward. But I think also because I was getting to do my this podcast as well as the other one, maybe that helped my perspective. But anyway, and you just have to have those motivations. I mean, I have uh, what we're now calling the hipster motorcycle, which is a Peloton bike. I live in, the, in a cabin in the woods. So I live off the grid. Not off the grid. I'm not like a doomsday. Well, proper, you're in Virginia. In Virginia. So regardless, but no matter where you are, off yeah, the, you're off the grid. But it's beautiful. So, <laughs> But I wake up and I'm like, and I love doing it. I love the spin. I love being on the bike. I love the music. What kind of bike is this? It's a Peloton bike. What's you know that? those commercials? You know, it's no. like the spin bike with the screen. 
What? Have you seen any TV? They got commercials everywhere. It's like it's a spin bike in your house. Oh. And so you have access to like other people doing, you know, their spinning. Oh, like, yeah. no, I've never seen this. Yeah. No, yeah. Wow, you guys are really more progressive out there. Than no, just, that's just for me. That's my. That's your thing. Yeah. But I wake up and I'm like, I don't want to do it. I want to. I just I'd like to sleep. Right. And and I'm like, but I'm not going to because I know that within five minutes. I can see I'm other hipsters really happy. riding exactly. this bike. Yeah. <laughs> I can be yelled at by somebody who's an actress who's masquerading as a spin instructor. So wait, I don't get it. You watch a video of other people doing it at the same time as Sorry, you. Like was, you can do it together. Yeah, I probably didn't explain it well. So <laughs> so the way it works is they have like a set of instructors. And so the instructors, they have recorded classes. So they actually have studios in different parts of the country. Mm-hmm. And so they'll do a spin class. And you, you see a few people like behind them or in the reflection of the mirror. But they're like the entertainment slash instructor. And is this through your phone or through the through, bike? And they have this like beautiful 21 screen inch screen on the, that's okay. on the bike and, uh, and you get to watch it and do it. And then you can do a live class. So like literally why it's live. There's that's not cool. really a lot of value between doing a live class and a recorded class. Yeah. Cause other than you might get a shout out from the instructor. So it depends on your vanity and your right, need. To be, right. your need to well be then seen. I would do the live class. Yeah. You need to be seen. I need to be recognized. I did want to be seen on my birthday. Cause I just, Oh, did they know it was I your birthday? I didn't make it. I didn't oh. make it. I mean, I was, you were late. Time, so. Oh, okay. When's your birthday? May 5th. Okay. Yeah, it's coming Pretty up. Pretty good birthday. What, how old are you turning? 40. Wow, you look young. Yeah, Not that 40's old. No, but I felt I have felt 25 for like a long time. That's good so, news. Yeah. Yeah, unless you're referring to just like being an idiot kid who just like is like boobs 25 yes. or like a you know, vibrant, young, healthy 25. It's there's two different 25s. Yes, and I mean it from the standpoint that like I don't feel uh, constrained or I don't there's like my dad likes to talk about how you kind of uh, you know, your house, what you miss when it's gone and that you don't want to wake up and feel your age. And I just, I don't like have aches and pains and, you know, yeah. I have a gently used body cause I'm, I was an indoor Jew. Right. You of know. course. Yeah. 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 You don't have many so, miles on no, that exactly. body. It's got uh, I used to have on my fridge, a magnet that said, um, if you don't, if you didn't know how old you were, how old would you be? Or something like that. Cool. And I, uh, I was like, I always was like 58 pretty sure that's the right number from the time i was three years old 58 wow what about now 71 (laughs) (laughs) it's getting worse no um i feel like i really now feel just my age (laughs) in a like a good way and a bad way like i don't feel youthful i'm i'm gonna be 35 in april um i don't feel like extra youthful um mentally or physically but i also don't feel like the same miserable that I used to feel, which was like the 58-year-old in me. Um, and 58-year-old man, by the way. Not a 58-year-old woman, but a 50-year-old man. Do you know why that he was a man? Yeah, I do. Because I find old women to not be as likable as old men. And so I find to myself to be like curmudgeon-y in a likable way. And that's a man to me. So it's like I feel kind of like I've always been um, the guy from Up. Have you ever seen the movie Up? I haven't, and I know I need to. You need to. Yeah. yeah. It's He's the old man who's cranky. The balloon. I remember, I remember the... I saw the beginning. Yeah. But he's lovely, but he's this old cranky guy, but rightly so, because there's idiots all around him, and they're trying to take his house to build a, you know, a new condo unit for millennials. You know, like... So rightly, he's annoyed. So I feel like that's who I am, but the old lady who's annoyed, she's more like, eh, shut up, old lady, and go knit. You're like, you're annoying. You know, like, I don't know. So I really want to age into an old man and not an old woman. Is fingers crossed. Yeah, finger, I, I wish you fingers crossed. Thank you. Thank you. I think it's possible. I think you could do it. Yeah. And especially confident. at that, you know, time, it'll be the future. 
Yeah. And so maybe no, I'll uh, I'll be a, I'll be a terrible old lady, but I feel like <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, what were we talking about? Oh. We've gone off the rails. My fault. No, this is I think this is the whole idea. Yeah. So so uh, we were talking about like how how we evaluate success, and so the last part, and this is the important part, which is so we have quality of life symptoms, and then we have post traumatic growth, and what that boils down to is. What do you actually believe about the experiences you've had in your life? And so, you know, there's this idea, obviously you can't change your past, but you sure as hell can change how you interpret and make meaning of your past. Yes. Uh, Like when, you know. Shout out for that. That's so true. And it's important because I tend to believe, well, not tend to, I believe that that everything that we confront is designed to teach us a lesson. And often there's this principle that you'll get the same lesson until you pass the test. Mm. And I had... Uh, in my marriage and in a few other instances, I was, I was kind of attracting or uh, encountering the same dynamic of a person. And I, I really had to like uh, explore my own patterns and behaviors and thoughts. Right. About, like, why is it that it's like the same thing with just a different mask on? And, yeah. and so, and, and I did, and I, I had, but I, you know, it took me down some hardcore path, but how I did you figure it out? Uh, I talked to, it, it was this interesting idea, I think for me about, uh, trying to find, uh, like, uh, trying to think, because like mentors or teachers isn't the right word, nor is a god. But it was like, like I was attracted <laughs> to people That's who a had jump. this, like, but mentor was, god. Yeah, but it was like this. Well, like mentors are good, right? But it was this sense of trying to find like these infallible beings who I could like uh, hang my hat on and really kind of like look up to and kind of like idolize. And I found that that um, struggle actually had to do with my own struggle in like religion and spirit and. And I had a buddy of mine who was just talking to him one day, and he was a rabbi, and he just said, you know, do you know what Israel means? I said, no, and he goes, it's wrestling with God. Israel means wrestling with God? Yeah, and so it was Jacob, and when he he wrestled with God came down in the story, and and that's where the name Israel came from. And and what was cool about that is it gave me permission to not know. It gave me permission to actually grapple with what did I believe about some higher power. I was thinking it was just like WWE style wrestling. Well, it might have been. Like (laughs) I think if we made the movie now, it would be an epic fight with – I don't know, Israel, it would, yeah, it would yeah. just be a cage match. But yeah. that was that. So that was like the interesting part is the the solution to my issues that that manifested in relationships was actually like a very spiritual concern of of what do I believe about about God? Yeah. And 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 I grew up with like you know in the Jewish faith where it's a very cerebral faith. It's also like no one tries to k- persuade you. You're kind of in the club. That's what's cool know? about the Jews because you got all these weirdo Christians who are like come to our side and they do all this recruiting and it's creepy and it feels like sales pitchy whereas like Jewish people you guys are like we don't even want you we don't want new people we're good get away get away this is our club we're in it goodbye well, and so there's no proselytizing but the part where that's a little problematic is like when you're a kid it's kind of assumed that you're connected to it and so i don't yeah. feel like i ever had uh, that connection to my faith, and uh, and then, um, and I wasn't because you know Jews is not just a religion; it's a culture. It's like a way of being, and so I was never connected. I mean, I went to Tufts, which is a third Jewish, and I have like one Jewish friend, which is almost improbable statistically. That's got to be like completely the only g- right. person that I know who went to Tufts is Jewish. Of course, they yeah. you know, and so like I just I always felt like a stranger in a strange land. But I think for me, it was like understanding. Okay, and that to me is the. The, one of the important part of life is figuring out what is your struggle, right? What is it that you're trying to make sense of? And from that place, you know, if you struggle with issues around relationships or around uh, uh, being more concerned what other people think of you than what you think of yourself, then, you know, you may want to go down the route of looking at like codependence. Like there's avenues for all of this stuff. 
And I had this, I have this vision one day of creating like a struggle well encyclopedia. And the idea being like, okay, so you're going through a divorce. Like here's 10 people. Here's what they wish they knew when they were going through it. Yeah. Here's the things that worked really well for them. And just try to like harness the power of human experience, yeah. especially the things we do. You know, like the divorce track is like such a cliche of like, you know, I followed the track of like you go and you try to like sleep with as many people because you're, you're just like bruised and you're bad and you have no confidence. And then you end up attracting the wrong kind of friends and you drink it too. Like it's yeah. but like, I mean, I can that, that you know, that phase of man whoring, right, is like <laughs> well established. But it's like but no one told me. Right. No one told me like and I think that to me is the interesting part about life. And, and the hope part of that, which is interesting, is a buddy of mine uh, who had been divorced. He looked at me and he, he took me for a walk and he said, you know, the coolest part of being divorced is you get to start over and you can be whoever you want to be. Mm-hmm. And it was the only person who gave me. You didn't have kids, right? No. Okay. And it g- but gave me the other side of the story. Like, oh my God, there's, there's, I don't want to say silver lining. There's value in this experience. Yeah. And so that's how you give someone hope is you, you inject the possibility that as bad as things are, they could be, you're not going to recover because that doesn't, recovery in life yeah. doesn't exist. What are you recovering? You can't go back to yesterday, uh, but you can be better. And that, I think, is the idea. And so that mindset is the part that I find most important with people coming through our program because just because you had a shitty upbringing, just because you had really difficult combat experiences doesn't mean you're done, right? You haven't filled your trauma bucket. Your parents are going to die. You might get divorced. Things are going to occur in your life. You'll get car accidents, whatever it is. So you're trying to make them feel more hopeless before they can feel hope. Well, but you have to train (laughs) people for what happens next. If you only focus on getting them through what's already happened, you don't actually equip them with the skills they need for life. And so that's why we talk about training versus treatment, talk about struggling well, which is the notion that inbuilt into that, that, that title is that struggle will find you. And ironically, by accepting that idea, you in fact make it irrelevant. Right. You know, you, and, and I think uh, that idea of really working with our students who come through the programs, which is what we call them, to, to focus on what do you believe? And, and that, uh, to your point about spreading hope, you know, there's the story of the guys at the Hanoi Hilton who were prisoners of war for between nine months and 10 years. And uh, they were when tortured. Was this? this was in the uh, 60s and 70s during okay. the Vietnam War. First guy was shot down in 1964, got out in 73. And Oh my if, God. If I, these guys were, they weren't treated as prisoners of war, which there's like Geneva conventions and they have to get fed and stuff. And Red Cross goes in. These were treated, they were treated as war criminals, which means like abused and, and, and solitary, all these sorts of things, tortured. So my, my question to you would be, if I said to you that these guys spent nine months, 10 years and they were coming home, what percentage of them do you think would come home with PTSD? A hundred percent. Right. So that's the normal answer. And in some ways to me, that reflects our societal view of struggle. But the truth was it was only 4%. Holy. And check this out. 80% of them were better off because of their experience. Holy. So they these were, guys were not pussies. No. Well, it's not just that. It's that they had uh, a construct to navigate their experience with. And Why? Who gave them the construct? The, this guy, James Stockdale, who's the commander. And, and he had oh. studied, and this is one of the, he had studied the Stoics and, and had this profound understanding What's about the like. Stoics? The Stoics are, were pre-Christianity uh, 400, 500, I think in Rome or Greece. And what they talked about, Epictetus is the guy that Stockdale read and they talk about how to live. So imagine in a world where like there wasn't really religion, this was a guiding, uh, books in how to, how to live well. And so these guys, these Stokes would train soldiers, uh, people in the community and Stockdale had read this book by Epictetus and it was all about control, which you can control and ignore the rest. And so that, crazy that we have books from then yes. that you can read. Well, that's crazy. And what's also crazy is, by the way, they're also as valid now as they were 
2,400 years ago. Right. And they're available on barnesandnoble.com. You can yeah. go to Amazon. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, but that's the part that strikes me. It's like this, this thing of struggle is as old as humans. Right. And so we look at like technology and we're like, oh, we're going to do this virtual reality treatment and all this other stuff. And I'm like, you know, this stuff's been around forever. And before we had Freud and before we had psychoanalysis and before we had prescription medicines, we had each other and we had ways of connecting and supporting each other. Right. And I think that's what that story teaches me. And, I th and, and so one of the guys who was there, Charlie Plum, six years in the Hanoi Hilton, shot down five days before his tour was about to end in Vietnam. And, oh my God. and, and Charlie, his, you know, his hope was to get home to be with his wife. They didn't have kids, but to be home with his, his wife. And he got home, his wife had annulled the marriage because she thought he was dead. And so, you know, it's like the point is the trauma, the, the struggle never ends. Yeah. And, and yet, if you meet yeah. Charlie, he's like the most remarkable man you'll ever meet. He's still alive. He's still alive. Wow. And what he says is the prison wasn't the cell. It was the eight inches in his head. Yeah. And Charlie wrote the forward to her book, which is like one of the greatest uh, honor. Like I had tears when he agreed to do it because I was like, this oh, guy awesome. is. I, there's only two people in the world that make me speechless, at least thus far. Kristen Carney and. Well, uh, <laughs> so you can be three. Okay. So Charlize Theron, who I met one time, and I, I didn't, Charlize, Charlize, I didn't have words. Then she punched me. She like hit me in the in the arm and was like, "What's up, buddy?" Because I was. Oh I was my god! I had I thought you were gonna say someone so much deeper than her, and, and I Charlie. actually don't like her as an actress. I don't. I mean, we're not friends anymore. Wow, that hurts. Yeah, I think I tweeted once like. She is so mediocre. Okay, I said it. Like, I can die happy now or something. Well, and w side note, though, when you say about deeper, because her story, her mom killed her dad in front of her. What? Yeah, so her dad was oh, well, incredibly, like incredibly abusive. And so one of the reasons she plays these female characters right. is because it's a reflection of, like, the story of her life of needing to be strong and seeing mm. her mother. Um, but the father came in to kill them. Who's in, the in, asshole in now? The, Me. Right, exactly. Me. Yeah. Giant. Trump card. Huge, yes. Wrong word. Um, <laughs> whatever the right word is now. Um, so, so that and Charlie is the other one. Cause I just don't even know what to say. I'm like in these, these folks who, uh, I look up to and I admire and I hope that in some way, and I think I have in my life, but if I'm ever put to the test, I hope like Charlie, I'm, I would be able to rise to that, that level. Yeah. And, and one of the things I find funny, uh, I'd listen to one of your podcasts and you talked about how hard it is to meet quality people who you know one of the things we say is you've got to surround yourself with three to five people who um are supportive and are are good people and have practices and principles that you admire and want to be like but it's like so hard to find them because there's no club where it's just like this is the club of good people you know yeah, that family. you can go yeah. online and find you know it's, so it's really difficult well and, and and if you created that inevitably it would very quickly become no, a all shitty site. people yeah. well no it'd be oh, a dating or a dating site, site right because right. it's like uh that that like, I said this idea I was like how do we connect good people and it's like inevitably anything on the internet goes lowest common denominator like yeah. the most physical you know needs and people will be you yeah, know it'll be absolutely. the next grinder and I think totally. that <laughs> that one of the things that I brought into my life when I, so veterans serve that role for me randomly the other thing is like people who aren't alive I mean you know people who are dead they can't really disappoint you anymore so when I read like Victor Frankl and I can oh, like go they back can. to that they can and how? they will um well, you, you can relive re, you can relive shit that's bothered you you can hold on and you can you can stew no, over sorry i mean like uh james stockdale oh okay right? like i don't mean that, like your grandmother oh, okay, right okay. who like you know i i mean like if you find these people and 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 people who who have struggled like if you go back to the stoics right. it's like okay well nothing about this story is going to change this dude's not going to break my right. heart or disappoint me or right. Right. turn out to be like a a piece of shit he's these are like these are people who they are who they were yeah and i think that to they're me they're long was like, long gone yeah that and that's helpful to me those 
those stories, I think, provided me a lot of hope when I needed yeah. it. So because they're si- very solid. Yeah, they're like rocks. Well, and they're unchanging. I mean, right. unless people are like unearthing and trying to assassinate people's characters who aren't. Yeah, around, which eventually I'm sure someone will. They will get around to. Yeah, it. yeah. someone will. Uh, quick w- question before we do segments. Um, what is the medication situation for? these guys are you guys able to prescribe medication are you using much are you just doing more like cognitive things so we don't so we use the process of post-traumatic growth which is kind of what we lay out in the book as we go through our program and so um, in terms of prescribing or modalities I think what you would see uh, and we have two psychologists we work with one guy Rich Tedeschi and Rich is the father of post-traumatic growth and he coined the term in 1995 and um, they've seen and they see like the best practices of what would would be the best things that a therapist could do in what we do, right? So, so there are, are general principles that if you look at what we do, you'd say, okay, if those were done anywhere, they would be effective. In terms of the medication situation, uh, it's definitely true that a lot of people come to us on a lot of medication, a yeah. lot, like the most being 37. Holy. Yeah. So we're oh talking my, how like- are they, How can you even still be alive on 37? Sleep pills, anti-seizure, anti-nightmares, anxiety, depression, things that you shouldn't take together. And a lot of this stuff's being used off-label. Like, it's not FDA-approved for some of the things that get used. Even in, like, mental... I'm not talking about, like, rogue doctors. I'm talking about the medical system. And so a lot of people come on those. And for us, you know, the the guidance is, you know, while you're here, you take your medicine as as prescribed, right? What we don't need and we don't want is is for you to start to try to to just hold turkey in. Because there's just, you know, there's there's a process. And you you experience, you know, when I, I just stopped taking the pills, but I wasn't taking, like... Alprazolam or anti-anxiety, Xanax stuff every day. So I think for us, what we have seen um, is 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 a significant reduction. Like that guy was on 37 pills, is on like six or eight, yeah. which is that's a huge gain yeah. in terms of his ability to feel like himself again. Um, but it is a so you guys aren't adding any medication. We in. don't. You're just we taking don't do it away if possible. Right. Eventually, and w- right? And we have a we have a fundamental belief that I'm in like, life I came here for some pills. Where are my goddamn there pills? Are no pills. There are. There's good well, food. Well, I quit. There's bacon. Oh, um, okay. That's a pill. Helpful. Yeah. But we believe uh, in life you have to be able to walk through life on your own two feet and that we're designed to do that. And if we weren't, Sp- go ahead. Speaking of veterans, though, do they all have two feet? Um, well, they might have prosthetics. Okay. But, no, so, but are don't. you seeing men or men and women with, with missing limbs and things yeah, like so that and like severe body things from it, war? And we do, we do one program in particular um, – We'll do, we're doing one in March with uh, Disabled American Veterans and Gary Sinise Foundation. And Gary Sinise um, raises money to build homes for severely injured, which usually means double, triple, quadruple amputees, paralysis, um, because the homes need to be God. sort of special, specially designed. Yeah. And, and so we do a program for those guys. And, and it's what's amazing. And one of the guys I'll spend time with in, in March is Dave Riley. And Dave is a quadruple amputee, got a bacterial infection while swimming, <gasps> was, a, was a Coast Guard rescue swimmer, which is the Coast Guard Special Forces equivalent. And he got a bacterial infection, woke up, and, and his wife had had to make the decision for them to amputate his limbs or else the infection was going to spread. And yeah, so Wait, so this wasn't even in war? Not even in war. And Dave will tell you that that was the best thing that ever happened to him. No, and he's lying. No, he's not because his he life— He has no arms or legs? No arms or legs. He goes skiing. He, um, and, and his capacity—you know, there's this whole idea and this really interesting thing, and it comes back to the discussion about the housewives— is <laughs> is and, and, and plastic. It surgery. always comes back to the housewives. It does, but it's plastic <laughs> surgery and like the, the it's it's this idea that if you think about humans, it's are we the light or are we the light bulb? And when we get obsessed with the light bulb, 
we're constantly trying to like worry about our external, our shell, but that's our body is just a holder of our spirit. And that's really where we want to be uh, focusing our energy and our time. And so when you get injured in a severe way, one, you're, you're forced to grapple with uh, a great deal of things. The second is like life, just like you getting out of bed, like me getting, I just think about this all the time when I'm with these guys is the mere act of them getting out of bed or getting to breakfast is a huge ordeal. Yeah. I'm like where I take it for granted that I can wake up and just walk downstairs. Yeah. And so those things uh, and the constant struggles create a strength in them and a capacity and an insistence on serving that, that changes people really dramatically. There's another guy, Jim Sersley, a triple amputee from Vietnam. And Jim wakes up every morning, thanks God for the U.S. Army, and he thanks God that he got injured. Right? And you think <laughs> about <people>. that. <laughs> exactly. And, and, but that's when you say, where does hope come from? I'm like, when that dude stands in front of you and, and you're a 25-year-old who lost your legs and Jim says that to you, well, then you're like, okay, right? I got it. But do you think you have to have the spirit naturally to be able to feel optimistic in that situation? I, I truly don't think I'd have that spirit. I really think I, I mean, maybe I would impress myself and, and do a lot better than I would imagine, but I really think I would just crumble and, and never recover and kill myself. Well, and, and you don't know. And I think this is where it's so important to have the right people around you because it's it's possible to get into that place and feel aggrieved and and so like charlie plum tells a story that when uh, so the way these guys talked to each other was a tap code they would tap on the walls of the prison in, in vietnam and the first time this guy tried to reach out to him um charlie was like woe this is, is the me plane, the plane went down guy yeah and he was like woe okay. is me this is ridiculous the government's fault i shouldn't be here that sort of attitude yeah. right the victim mentality yeah and this guy was like oh you, you you've got a disorder you've got this this prisoner's thinking that's what you've got he goes you think you're a prisoner he goes you're only a prisoner if you agree to be a prisoner and and so that's what, for charlie he had somebody who said no, like, no, where'd no, you no. get the weed we're prisoners yeah. but it's like but w- but that it's like when you have people in you your life like who don't who help you shift your perspective because yeah. ultimately that to me is like the greatest gift you can help someone is to see something in a different way in a different light yeah. and so that's what we focus on and that's that last part of what we measure effectiveness is is the the most fun like testimonials when I'll say hey guys we got a donor they want and they'll be like my life is still or there's still struggle in my life. And I'm like, and then it says, and I can deal with it in a way that I never had before. And my relationships with my wife and my children are, are amazing. And so we have these, like, these amazing stories. But the cool part is it always starts with like, there's a struggle in my life. I'm like, no shit, you're human. That will always right. be true. And if you act like that's not true, that would worry me a lot. And so yeah. what we see, at least on the ground in our programs, is you know, it, it, is, it is deeply humbling when someone looks at you and, and you know it's true and they say, you, you saved my life. And I'm like, yeah. that's not, we didn't save, you saved your life. You came here, you did the hard work, you did this. Um, and, and when you see someone at the beginning of a week who we talk about kind of the someone home, but there's no light on and really just hanging by a thread and then to start to walk back to like, not just less bad, but to joy and, 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 and a smile and connection and those things I think give me a lot of pride. And the other thing is when people say, I've never felt like this. I've never felt this alive. And I'm like, you know, that's, that's amazing. That's an amazing blessing to be part of that journey for somebody's life. More alive than they felt when they were in war. Yeah. And that's, and I know how, you know, I had a a, a double amputee tell me that he, because I looked at him and sometimes these guys, if you're working with, if they're working with civilians, they'll try to, you know, test you out. And and I said to him, I (laughs) said, I know something that most people don't. I said, and I know that the most alive you were was when you were at war. And he looked at me and he smiled and he goes, felt like Michael Jordan over there. 
He goes, and I can't get it back. Wow. Can't get it back. And I was like, so that's one of the interesting parts of like peak experience theory is what happens when you have these peaks and, and, and I think out in the world and in these crazy situations. And that's why, you know, these, these prisoners in the Hanoi Hilton, a lot of them came home and got divorced, not because they weren't well, but because they were now living at a plane of existence that was much more profound. Yeah, you can't relate for, anymore. Exactly. To yeah. peop- to the co- not common folk, but to the common, yeah. you know, like people who didn't, didn't have that experience. Yeah. And that's what I hear in, in, in when you talk. It's what I hear, which is like, and that's why I think you, you may claim not to be curious, but I think <laughs> you, you're profoundly curious in a different way, which is to say to see that while you're in it is a really an amazing thing. And it's deeply, potentially deeply destabilizing. And I, and I brought a quote that I thought about from Oscar Wilde. And he said uh, that a dreamer is one who can only find his way by moonlight. And his punishment is that he sees the dawn before the rest of the world. Mm. And it's like the curse of the, the mm-hmm. people who are awake mm-hmm. is that we see everything and, and it hurts. Yeah. And, and everything feels a lot more. And then it's hard to connect or relate to the rest of the world. It's hard to find people to, to relate to. And at the same time, if you realize that like you're the ones who are awake um, and not asleep, at least it gives you the courage to know like, all right, like like this is actually what people for thousands of years have We're written about. We're the lucky about. ones in yeah, a way. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's the ironic part of when you struggle and suffer and and is that that's true. And, and I think that that's the hope, right? The hope is like actually this is living. This right. is, and who the hell knows what happens next? We don't know. This is it. Yep. But it's good if yep. you look at it from the right perspective. Yeah, and my, my hope is that that, there's lots of different theories about what happens when we die, but you said something about um, like that we have the same fate as douchebags, and I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I'd like to think that, that this the knowledge we gain, the wisdom we gain, is some part of the reason we're here. And so like that maybe, that maybe we will get be to different. take it with us. Yeah. So that's my hope. Oh, that's great. So, yeah. you, t- you know, it's perspective. Yeah. Our minds are so strong and so weak at the same time because like we're just so fixated on what we think we know in our experience and we can't see outside of that but then you know it's all in our heads and then we change a perspective and it's so powerful it's just you, your mind is so powerful and you don't really realize how par- powerful it is but um okay so uh we're gonna do the segments real quickly because i have to do the other podcast and um hopefully you might be joining no all pressure right. again um please do it no pressure uh, so, uh, for who's sadder, um, I figure since you're such a boy band guy that we would talk about no boy idea. bands, <laughs> um, who's sadder, the Backstreet Boys or NSYNC? NSYNC, because at least the Backstreet Boys all kind of, uh, disappeared. That's into, what my yeah, argument was. Yeah. But like, you got to see Justin, Justin all you know, the time. And JC, I never understood how to pronounce that guy's last name. It was like made me feel like I had dyslexia because it's like Chazev or something. Oh, Chazé. Yeah, that guy. Yeah. Like J.C. Chazé. Yeah, you know, they tried and Lance was on the TV show. But it's right. like to see the one dude who's like the dude and married to, married to a girl who went to Tufts for a year, Jessica Biel. Oh, and not a Jew. No. Wow. She was the one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was exactly my argument because when I think about the Backstreet Boys, I can't even think of anyone's name. I know there was like Nick something maybe. Why do I know their name? It was Kevin Richardson. I mean, this oh is. Oh my god! I knew you were a, really you were a you were a boy band guy. I knew it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So well, I actually I prefer an early '90s R&B. Bobby Brown was my favorite. <laughs> really? Yeah. How's he doing now? Well. Yeah, it didn't turn out well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he did shake my hand once. Slapped my hand at a concert. 
didn't wash my hand for a week and no in way. retrospect it's probably a poor call that was a very yeah. poor call there was some cocaine left over on that hand yeah. maybe you got That's high <laughs> yeah i don't i was 12 <laughs> maybe um but uh who's the who's the guy or who's the kid who's the brother of a Backstreet Boy that's got famous and is terrible. Aaron Carter. Aaron Carter. Nick Carter. That's what yeah. I was thinking. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I at the time, this is why I didn't belong in my, like, generation or whatever. Because when boy bands were big, I was like, this is so idiotic. And I'm hope- hoping people were smart enough to also agree. But I cannot believe that there are people in the world who were actually into it. In a like passionate way, where they'd go to the concerts and buy the merchandise and cry when they see them. I just I can't ever but understand it. I mean, I was a new kids on the block girl, but I was also like six. Yeah. Well, but the thing is, but it, you know, you have new kids on the block, Backstreet Boys, In Sync, uh, Jonas Brothers, One Direction. The, the the thing is, for whatever reason, One Direction straight down the tube. Yeah, That's but the I'm thing saying. is, like that. The, for whatever reason, we have some desire to watch like people do choreographed dancing <laughs> and, and act ridiculous. I will say I had a really weird encounter at the London, like the business class lounge one time with Nick Carter um, and then Tommy Lee. And, the, oh, and, and I had this crazy combo. grainy picture from like a Sony Vio or whatever that thing was called. Yeah. And it was just in the, on the paper. It was that uh, Tommy Lee was with Paris Hilton. Anyway, one of them slept with the other one's girlfriend. Not like they were both there. And they oh, were both yeah, in the same was, room. It was, but the, and there was no bad blood or anything. So I don't know what yeah. the hell was going on. Yeah. But I did have my my moment to meet them. It was a very wow. odd experience. And you're not speechless though. Hopefully, fingers crossed. I was crossed. far from speechless. Okay, yeah, I was more. <laughs> I was think I horrified might be a better word. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, Tommy Lee is dating this girl named Brit- Brittany Ferlin, who was who became like the first like Vine star. Like famous from Vine. Do you remember Vine? Oh, I remember. It's gone. Okay. <laughs> um, and now she's like Instagram famous ish and Twitter famous ish. But she was doing stand up like right at the like she was doing open mics when I was kind of out here doing stand up. Anyway, it's so weird because now she's famous ish and is dating Tommy Lee. And it's just the weirdest thing ever. He must, you know, you see people like that, like John Mayer. Like you just wonder like what what endorphins or whatever the right word would be that they're putting off that they that they can attract i mean britney's a very attractive young woman and Mm -hmm. she's with tommy lee but whatever do it okay so uh so congratulations and sink your sadder okay thank you these mics are not picking up the way they normally do okay um and so for f sound effect i will oh yeah and it will sound very natural no one will know um so for f dat shit uh I figured I'd talk about this since it has to do with um, war and military-ish type of things. Um, so it was just a semi, in- a pretty interesting article about uh, this guy who was a conscientious objector of going to World War II, um, and I think he was from like a religion because a lot of the people who were objectors were from were like Mennonites or Quakers or things like that but they still wanted to serve the country so um so 3,000 of these guys who were conscientious objectors were assigned to mental hospitals to work Hmm. um to serve essentially and um this guy was in a uh in a in a uh mental institution in Pennsylvania and I didn't write down the name I might go back and edit it in um but uh 
it, but the the way he described where he worked sounds so horrifying. Um, so uh, there were 350 patients that were incontinent, and um, there was no way they there was no order of it. Everything was all over the floor, feces, urine, and they were living in it. This was in like you know around World War. So it was obviously World War Two, which is obviously long time ago but um he was talking about just how the smell got into his clothes and um it would s- remain after he washed them he didn't have tide pods no. that's why no. uh <laughs> in the incontinent ward um it took weeks before you got used to eating supper with the smell all through your clothes and eventually you did get used to it but you basically just smelled of other people's feces for like weeks um and uh, there was, uh, in the incontinent ward, um, just a concrete slab. There were no chairs. There were no activities. There was no therapy, not even a radio to listen to for hundreds of men. Uh, most of them were naked and walked about aimlessly or hunched on the floor and huddled against filthy bare walls. This is, it's just horrifying. Um, and then there was a building B they called the violent ward or the death house because that's where the angry uh, people were. And they would uh, violently attack one another. And um, there were just rows and rows of men strapped and shackled to their bed frames. So I feel like this dude's kind of like, eh, I probably should have just gone to war. That, that would have been better. Well, and yeah, I mean, he definitely was in the middle of a different kind of war zone. Did you see yeah. the Mel Gibson movie? I can't remember the name now. It's escaping me about the conscientious objector. No. It's only it's conscientious objector won the Medal of Honor. Oh. That movie. What? Yeah, and I'm not, How? I can't say I'm like a huge fan of Mel Gibson, but the movie. Well. Um, Starts yeah, for <laughs> starts slowly, but it it's an amazing story, and I think. How did he win a Medal of Honor? Um, saved him. He was a medic. Oh. And the, the the story, okay. which is true, which the movie uh, tells, is it's mind blowing. It, it really is amazing what this guy and so he, he obje- objected, but was still there. So as a he medic? served, but he just wouldn't. He wouldn't carry a weapon. I see. Okay. So he he was he wanted to serve, but he didn't want to yeah. do that. And I think, but the situation with mental hospitals, you know, I can't. One of the reasons why Kennedy shut down mental institu- mental hospitals was because of those kinds of conditions in the 60s. I thought it was like and Reagan that did that. I think Reagan may have defunded. This. So what you had was this shift away because it was terrible press for some of these like legendary, awful places. And so my understanding is that Kennedy shut those down in favor of community mental health. And the idea was that it's much better that people are part of their community. And at the same time, I don't, you know, we don't, just like I was saying about like nursing homes, we don't serve these populations very, very well or very easily. Yeah. And there's, if anyone wants to look up something, there's a town in Belgium called Heel where they take in people, uh, just families have for hundreds of years taken in people who are uh, mentally ill. And the coolest part is, so let's just say, you know, you, you're going to take someone in and they'll be like, hey, Chris and John's coming on Friday. That's all you know. You don't know like he's schizophrenic or anything. All you know is the guy's name and that he's coming. And these families. Is it John with an H or just is it J-O-N? It's probably J-O-N. Okay, then he's going to be crazy. Yeah, but but you don't get to (laughs) know that because your job is to see him as a human being. And I think we, when people struggle, we reduce them to a diagnosis. And I think that is really damaging to us and it's damaging to that person. And so I think um, that's what I'm always mindful of. And I think like, gosh, you know, like arguably based on some of the things I thought about, I could have been in one of those places. And I'm like, and now I'm here. I mean, it's just, you know, there but for the grace of God. Yeah. And when you put yourself in that, place like i could have been there you realize that the people that are there are just people they're regular normal exactly. people that can end up there yeah so it makes it feel like more normal i guess you know yeah and i think we need to have better 
triage is probably the right word, but it's like, you know, you kind of, when you struggle, it's like, it just goes extreme fast. You know, we don't have this sort of process. And I think one of the things we want to work on is a strengthening folks before they go through those sorts of things. And B is, is actually having more options on that continuum. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this was a super fun show. I wanted to do Freudian slips with you, but my uh, co-host just texted me and she's like, are you guys done yet? So we have to end, but thanks for coming. And, um, tell me about the book and where people can find more information. So the book is called struggle. Well, thriving in the aftermath of trauma. It'll be available for pre-order probably in the next two to three weeks. And good thing you guys didn't call it struggle. Good. That's right. Not correct. English. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And we, uh, and so there's a website, strugglewell.com where you can get some information about it. And we're going to kind of put out a few things as teasers and then it'll be, uh, for sale on Amazon on May 1st. Cool. We're excited about it. And and I just want to thank you for what you do and having these conversations. It's, it's, um, I'm not sure if you realize kind of the impact, but when I heard about you and what you were doing, um, it just, it, 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 it heartened me in a lot of ways. And sometimes it feels very lonely in this world of, uh, not in a bad way, but it's just, it's awesome. So I just, uh, thank, thank you for what thank you Thank you. It's so weird. Like, I don't want to accept that, but thank you. Like, cause I just, you know, I'm like, well, I'm just, who am I? But thank you so much for that. Cause it makes me feel good and it keeps me motivated to keep doing the show. Cause I know it affects people and people need it and, and, and it makes them feel better. So that is important. So anyway, thanks again. Thank you. Uh, it's raining outside, which is bizarre cause I know you're not from LA. Not. So in the traffic in the rain, the things I've heard terrible, true, they but, can't drive, but it's okay. I was just listening to podcasts, like but are you going to be here for some sun? Um, no, sun I have to fly to Dallas tonight. To oh, go see my folks. Okay. Okay. Well, Anyway, I'm sure you've seen Sun before. It's I nothing have, I new. Have okay, it. all right. Well, then you're fine. So, okay. Uh, so, thank you guys for listening. And remember, if you're interested in, uh, in uh, supporting the show, please go to patreon.com slash mentally chill. And uh, remember to stay sad enough to listen, but not too sad. Bye. <laughs>